Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, one hundred and forty-four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprus, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. There shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. May God add his blessing to that reading of his own word. 
Last time in our series in Revelation, we were discussing the wonderful offer of the gospel that Christ offers to all those who are thirsty. And now this morning we have the privilege of thinking of another pleasant subject in that of the Bride of Christ. The key verse in our text, this our section of Revelation 21, the latter section, is verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And that's what our sermon this morning is about. I will show you the bride. Now this, incidentally, is a reminder of the nature of the, the messengers of God. Because this angel, who had evidently just been meeting out the last deadly plagues, judgments, files on the world... And now his job, all of a sudden, is to show John the glories of heaven. He has this more pleasant subject now, to show us the bride of Christ. And he is enabled to do that, as we see by the Spirit of God. Now, to go back to a theme that we've seen throughout this book, we see that if the whole story of of the scripture is a story of two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, so is Revelation a story about two different women. There's the great harlot, the prostitute, um, who is, uh, who's clothed, you know, in garish garments and whose end, as we saw, was destruction. And indeed, uh, we think it's the same angel who showed us her. In Revelation 17.1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. A language almost identical to what we're hearing now. And this Babylon, this harlot, that's the unbelieving world and all those who are in her. And we saw what was going to happen to her. But on the other hand, we have this woman, this other woman, this bride of the Lamb, who's clothed in radiant clothes and is exceedingly beautiful, whose end is everlasting joy. And this morning, Lord willing, we're going to hear a little bit more about her. Now, some might say, why spoil the surprise? It's kind of interesting. It's not something that we often do in in earthly weddings. Come, I will show you the bride before the wedding actually happens. Yet here we have this very clear situation. Well, I would say that, try as I might, I don't think I'm really going to spoil the the surprise because what it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, so that the very closest that we get is something akin to looking at a mirror. It's not like being face to face. Now, that's better than a veil. That's another picture we have sometimes of brides, that they have a, a veil so you can't see them. You can't see their glory, but that's, that's what our situation was in the Old Testament. We couldn't see these things very well at all. And we're a, a step better than that now. We uh, were able to see as in a glass, dimly. But that's still not going to be perfect. And so we know that there's yet going to be much opportunity for astonishment and surprise. But we're just going to look at the broad outlines of this. So who then is the bride? Well... Again, to not spoil the surprise so much as to say what you already know, it's us. It's the description of what happens to us if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're the bride of Christ. 
And this is a further explanation then of what is on offer in the gospel. We think of last time of what is on offer, what we get as believers. This is a further explanation of that union of, in Christ that I mentioned. This is a picture of those things. And strangely and amazingly, it is equally a picture of what Christ gets in this whole bargain. We haven't thought much about that. But you see, we get many, many, many wonderful things. Things, of course, which we don't deserve. We don't, have right, uh, we don't rightly have any right to at all. But believe it or not, Christ gets something out of this whole work of redemption. He gets a beautiful bride. And that's what we're going to hear about today. So I will show you the bride is our title with these four points. The bride is the city. Second, the bride is well built. Third, the city has no temple. And fourth, the bride is beautiful. And so the beginning and the end have to do with the bride and the middle two have to do with the city. The bride is the city. The city is well built. The city has no temple. And the bride is beautiful. So first, the bride is the city. As it says in verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So this angel explains to us this intention of what he's going to show to us. He's going to show us the bride, who is further described as the Lamb's wife. And who's that? We certainly know who the Lamb himself is. We've heard this name throughout the book of Revelation. We recall way back in chapter 5, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So who's the Lamb? He's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lord of all creation to whom every knee is going to bow. There's a lamb, and we also know that there's going to be a wedding. That's what it said also in not so long ago in chapter 19. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And in fact, one way to think of all of human history, and particularly this part of human history, is this getting ready of the marriage supper. Things are right now in preparation for that wedding to happen. There is going to be a marriage. There's a bridegroom who is the lamb. There is a a wedding. And, of course, there must be a bride. Now, who exactly this bride might be is not actually said outright here. What is said is only, in, in some sense, makes things more interesting. Because in verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem. Now, in the previous verse, he just said, I'm going to show you the bride And now he says, I'm going to show you the city. It's a bit strange, isn't it? Well, to help us here, we have to know that at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 2, it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so we understand that the city is in, in some way, it's likened to be like a bride. So it's mainly a city, and it's only kind of secondarily a bride, is that it? Well, no, because it's more than that. We're told very clearly in Ephesians chapter 5 that the Christian church actually is the bride of Christ, not just like it. 
And Ephesians 5.29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just like the Lord does with the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And you say, you've, you've slipped back here. You're not talking about Christ and church anymore. But sure enough, he says, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And what he says that in some sense then, human marriage is, is not just that what is going to happen in the future is a pale reminiscence of, of earthly human marriage. It's that human marriage is itself only a pale picture of what is going to happen in the future. Of the union of Christ with his bride who is the church, the believers. And so this church, the gathering together of all those who believe in Christ, that's the city, that's the new Jerusalem. And the bride, therefore, is, in fact, that great city. I will show you the bride. He shows us the city because the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ, is the bride. Well, secondly, we see that the city is well built, which is a good thing. And it's well built for any number of reasons. First of all, it's who, who makes it and where is it made? That's an important thing for us to consider, isn't it? When we buy something, very often something made in what we consider to be a good place by a good company or good manufacturer is going to be worth a lot more to us than some, some place that's made in not such a nice country with maybe a, a, a company we've never heard of, right? Because we recognize that, a, that the produce, the products of a certain country are going to be better than somewhere else. And we recognize that some Companies, some people are going to be more skilled at making them than others. Well, who is it? Verse 10, he carried me away to a spirit, to a great and high mountain, and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. All right, so this city, if you were to receive it, it would say, made in heaven. That's pretty good. Not made on earth, because everything made on earth, even the best, most prestigious of, com- of countries, is going to pass away. Because it's made by sinners. But this city is made in heaven, and the producer, the company, is God himself. He is the great craftsman of this city. And you must understand that in all the other things that we say, the most important of it is that God himself makes this city. You know, throughout history, we've also had attempts to make some sort of heaven on earth. We even remember the Tower of Babel, Early on in human history, as we try to make our way up to heaven, and we see how failed and impossible that was, everything that we make is going to fall and fail. But God is making this city, and it's going to be absolutely perfect. We can be sure of the craftsmanship. We can be sure about the planning. We can be sure about the execution. It's all going to be perfect. Well, just, uh, you could say so many things, but I'd say also with regard to this city being so well built, it's, it's large. Sometimes you get something that is extremely well built by the very best craftsman, and it's only this big. But this is something made like a Swiss, Swiss watch, only it's enormous, it's huge. It's laid out in verse 16, the city is laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with its reed, 12,000 furlongs. His length, breadth, and height are equal. Now, I don't know if you know the maths here, but that's 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles high. Vastly larger than the largest city on earth. 
larger than, of course, most entire countries. That is an amazing, an amazing size. And we must be amazed at the generosity of God that would make such a great city. It's furthermore, by the way, it's not just large, and uh, some large cities on earth are, are quite, um, well, they, they look frankly like rubbish heaps sometimes. Uh, large cities in the third world, they're just, there's a lot to it, but it's, it's not very well made at all. It's made out of nasty materials that easily fall away. But that's not quite the case here because this city is entirely constructed of gold and precious jewels. Verse 18, the construction of its wall was of jasper and the city was of pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, and on and on the whole list of 12 precious gems, one of which... If we had a good example of, well-cut and, and large in size, would be worth probably more than, than our, our house. And yet the whole city is made of these things. And furthermore, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the, the whole gate, understand, it's not just that there's a few pearls decorating. It's that the idea that the gate was made itself of pearl and just to sum it up, the, city, the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So the materials by which this ultimate craftsmen are making this ultimate city are absolutely precious and perfect and beautiful. And now it's not just sometimes there are beautiful things that aren't very safe. We can be sure that's not the case here because this city also has excellent walls. Verse 12, and she had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. So the picture here is, first of all, that the, the walls are very high. That's not to keep the people in. Um, that's pointing to the magnificent safety of this, of this city. Because when you come to this city of refuge, speaking of city of refuge not long ago, when you come to this one, you can be sure that you are safe. And isn't that what we are all ultimately looking for, safety? Well, you can be sure that that is the case here. Nothing is going to harm those who are inside of this city. And moreover, these walls each have the name of the 12 tribes of Israel. Because even though it's the new Jerusalem, it still is yet Jerusalem. This city is built upon the covenant promises made to Abraham. And it contains, for instance, all of the Old Testament believers, along with, with faithful Abraham, who was justified by faith. All of those who believe the promises given to them in the covenant, they are going to be found in this city. And, and all those things are part of its construction. And moreover, it has a very strong and firm foundation in verse 14. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. It's... The picture here is that it's built on this foundational message of the 12 apostles, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.10. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You see, that is the message, that is the foundation that the 12 apostles has, have it as they go out into all the world and spread the gospel and all those who also have this great uh, mission of the church, 
The foundation they're laying is not themselves. The foundation they're laying is not anything of earthly origin at all. It's nothing made on earth that is the foundation. The building up of this great city, the building up of the church, is on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only foundation that can be laid. It is the one already laid for us. And it is a strong, strong foundation. And I must say, if you're building your life, your situation, your happiness on anything other than this foundation, you certainly will be disappointed. You must understand that. You know, Christ himself, in his compassion for you, said this in in Luke 6. Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you who he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, and the stream beat vehemently against that house, and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built his house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And you understand that if you build your house, you build your foundation on anything on this earth, If the materials that you're pouring into it are earthly ones of yourself and of others like you, you're going to fall. You're going to fail. The things that you had hoped were going to save you, the things that you hoped were going to be of great use to you, the things that you hoped were going to bring you pleasure, it's all going to fall apart. And there won't be anything left at all. But those who build their life on the foundation of the Word of God and of the Gospel of Jesus Christ... They and everything built on it will remain forever. And that is the great picture of this city that we have, the heavenly Jerusalem. Christ ensures, that is, believe me, he takes his own advice. He didn't build his city on earth. It's a heavenly city. He didn't build his city out of things that were going to perish. He built them out of eternal, solid things. And he knows that his own city is built on the strongest of foundations, his own gospel, and ultimately of his own work on the cross to save us. There's no other permanent foundation other than that. Now, this is a city, and we are this city. If the bride is being likened to a city, the city is also likened to people who build up and make part of this city. Because you can be sure that the the glory of the city is not in the fact that there are precious materials. Christ himself over and over again says, don't esteem so much gold and silver. That's not, not in essence, where your focus ought to be because these things are nice, but they're not really of eternal glory. They're not really of eternal worth, so it must be pointing to, to something other than that. And maybe, in fact, what we find that Christ has built this city out of us, us as we are redeemed in the shed blood of Christ. Ephesians 2.19 says this, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, of whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Actually, all these things are a picture 
of how Christ is building up his church, his eternal church, his permanent church, a new heaven, a new earth, his great project throughout all of history, and he builds it out of you. You and I and all those who have ever believed and ever shall believe, they shall believe those are the ones that are being built up into this great city. We are the city. Thirdly, the city has no temple. We've said that this city is extremely well built and it's extremely well portioned. And obviously there has been no expense spared. There have been no corners, there's no cost-cutting measures involved in this, the building of the new Jerusalem. Everything, and, and we're not just talking again about gold and silver, we're talking about the shed blood of the precious Son of God. No expense spared, and yet it seems to be missing something. We would think it'd be, it'd miss, it, and I wouldn't be missing anything. And if it lacked anything at all, maybe the one thing that it would lack would be something, some sort of aspect of, of secular earthly things. Maybe it doesn't have a, a football stadium. Maybe it doesn't have a giant shopping mall. But you know, the funny thing is, the only thing that it is missing, the one thing that is mentioned that is missing is a temple. The thing that would seem to be the most religious. That's the one thing that is missing. Verse 22, but I saw no temple in it. And the reason for that is immediately given for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And that is something that we must think long and hard about. There's no temple no need for a temple, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And what a strange thing. Well, remember, just as I, I said in the situation for Ephesians 2, in whom you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. It's funny, in that, in that perspective, we ourselves are being built for a dwelling place. We're being built, a, made to be a dwelling and here in our text in Revelation, it says the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, that they are the temple. And you start to wonder exactly what we're talking about here. Well, that's further explained by what we have in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And here is where we review what we've already said. And the great thing about heaven is that God lives with us. The most amazing accomplishment of all this is that God has somehow managed to make a dwelling place that he would be with us, that he would be our God and we would be his people and that all those promises would be fulfilled. And of course, it's only amazing because we're sinners and we know that he cannot dwell with sinners and we cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. Throughout human history, there's been this progression of the dwelling place of God. Kicked out of Eden, no longer there, and soon enough, as has already been said, we are this progression of various situations of God dwelling upon men. The tabernacle, the temple, the church, to then finally, ultimately, when the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God will be with men and he will dwell with us. What an amazing thought. Now, for those who are in Christ, I want you to again think of the, the highest moment, the most joyful moment that you've ever had in your fellowship, whether that was early on in your Christian experience or more recently, the time at which you felt closest to the Lord Jesus, the time at which the most flood of joy thrilled your heart, 
when you think of his precious name and his presence and what he has done for you, and you say, rightly so, that if I could live in that moment forever, I would be happy. Well, you, you're right. And that's precisely what is, what is the situation. That is the situation in this dwelling place, but much more so than what we have now. I mentioned some other reasons why there are limitations to our experience of God's presence on earth. But surely the greatest of them is that we are not immediately there in this presence. Right now we see as in a mirror darkly there is something. There is a barrier. There is something between us. Our own sin, our own lack of clarity. We can't see everything as it is. But there is the dwelling place. There, the centerpiece of what is so wonderful about that city is that there is nothing that stands in the way of the fellowship of the Lamb and his bride. The whole place is set up so that nothing comes in between them, including making sure that he got rid of the temple. There's nothing that's going to keep us from the immediate presence of God. And so this greatest source of delight is the fact that the dwelling place of God is with man. So to sum up this third point, we must understand that the really and truly amazing, wonderful thing about heaven is that God will be there with us. And surely if we think about streets of gold, if we think about everything else that is so wonderful and well made about this city, that truly is the gem. The rest of it is just the setting that Christ himself, the Lamb, is the centerpiece. But we're going to go one step beyond this. Truly amazing, absolutely incredible, that a holy God should make his dwelling place with sinful men like us, sinful people who have no business on our own being in this, this, this place. And we can think of it as a great accomplishment of Christ on the cross, that he made a way that we might be with him forever in heaven. Well, there's one more thing which I find even more amazing, which is, fourthly, that the bride is beautiful. In fact, a little bit more than that, in verse 11 it says this, Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, we've already made it very clear that we are the bride of Christ, you and I and all believers. I don't know if you've ever gone to other churches. I don't know if you've taken a close magnifying look at our own church. When have these things come to your mind? I'm thankful, I'm thankful that in our love we overlook, and we ought to, because we overlook many faults, we overlook many sins. Uh, love overcomes, overwhelms a multitude of sin, and rightfully so. But in the cold light of day, and any kind of scientific observation of the people of God on earth, I don't think that this would come to your mind. I don't think that the first thing that you'd think of is that Christ, that, that God's people have the glory of God. I don't think that the first thing that would come to your mind is that they're like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, radiant. But this is what we're told. This is what we're assured in God's inerrant word. Now, we have previously heard how the bride has made herself ready. That was in chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. 
Now, just so we don't miss the point, we understand what is being said here. To her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clear and bright, for this, is the fine, this fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Righteousness, holiness, sanctification, that's what we're talking about. The bride has made herself ready. Just as a human bride, a physical earthly bride, makes herself ready by putting on the most beautiful clothes that she possibly can, so it is that we, the heavenly bride, put on the most beautiful things that Christ finds attractive, which is righteousness, holiness. She's made herself ready. And this right now is the process. This is what happens. After What happens after you put your faith in Christ? Why don't you just immediately go to heaven? You're not ready yet. You're not ready yet. However short or however long that time will be, you are making yourself ready. And if you're not very good at it, don't worry, because Christ is not going to have an ugly bride wearing ugly clothes that he doesn't find attractive. He's going to make sure that you come suitably attired, and he's going to work on you. He is going to work on you that you might be sanctified, and you might take on these things that he'd have you to take on, to be more like him, to wear these righteous acts which he enables us through grace to do. So you're going to make yourself ready. The bride has made herself ready. And that was the situation we already looked at. Sanctification, holiness. And now we get to see the result. The bride's made herself ready. What does she look like? The answer is she is radiant. She is absolutely radiant. We speak of a bride being radiant. And I think that's a single word in the English language that, that rightly captures what every bride aspires to be radiant. Not just well-dressed. Not just with nice clothing and jewelry and so forth. Not just well, with good makeup, but rather there is something in her face that is radiant. It has to do with what is inside as well as what is outside. That is the way. And I'm sad, by the way, that in most of our translations it's not adequately captured, but that is precisely and absolutely the word that we have here. When it says that her light was like a most precious stone. That word light, that's more like her luminescence. Her radiance is absolutely a very, the, the, probably the, the most perfect word to describe this. Her radiance. And that's further described as a jasper. That's a beautiful translucent stone. It's stone. It's something solid. It's something that you could build upon if you wanted to. If you had, if you could afford to do so. But yet it is radiating. It is translucent. It is putting out this beautiful colored light. That is the way that we are described. This bride is radiant. Now, what is the source of that radiance? On earth, if you have a jasper stone or any other kind of stone, it's going to, any light that you see coming from it comes from some other source, the sun or artificial lights or whatever. What is the light in heaven? Well, we already know that there's no sun and there's no moon. It doesn't even bother to say there's no artificial light. No sun, no moon. Why? Because Christ himself is the light. He is the source of glory in heaven. And any other source of light would only be to take away from his light. This bride has the glory of God, you see. As Christ shines in his glory, so this bride has the glory of God. 
Indeed, sometimes we might uh, rightly be a little bit uncomfortable as we say that the bride takes on the glory of God. That's not something you just throw around lightly. You don't, you don't say someone on earth has the glory of God on them. It's blasphemous. But this inerrant scripture assures us that this bride does have the glory of God upon her. Now, it's not something that properly originated in her, yet it is something coming from her. Because of who is in her, Christ himself. Because of the close communion that she has with this bride. You see this picture of, you remember in the Old Testament, Moses came up to the mountain and he had this time of fellowship, speaking face to face as it were. The Lord says, I don't do this with everyone, but I spoke face to face with Moses. And what was the result of that? When he came down from the mountain, his face was shining with radiance, with glory, because he had beheld God and his radiance was coming from him now. Now that wore off. But what happens if you're always in the perfect, unmitigated presence of a holy God? Well, you'll be radiant too. All of you, permanently, and in a better way than what Moses was. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's on earth now, but much, much more so in heaven, being transformed from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, I just say before we leave this, the fact that this bride is transcendently, radiantly, gloriously beautiful, Just remind us that it's not just us individually that have been so transformed, but that everyone else will have been as well. That's a wonderful thing. Sounds like a pretty good city because, you know, the problem is on earth, even as sweet as our fellowship is, and we have times of great fellowship, even in this time of the year when people think so much of families, we're reminded very often that we have closer fellowship, don't we, sometimes, with believers, other believers, other members of the family of God than we do of our own natural family sometimes. It's because we have the ultimate things in common with him. And our connection is even more important in blood as we have the Holy Spirit common living among us and we've all partaken of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet, our fellowship is limited. We are sinners. And sometimes our fellowship is inhibited by the things we do and the things that we say. And that's not going to happen in heaven. Sometimes we're hard to love. Let's let's be honest. Sometimes Christians are hard to love in this world. That won't be the case in heaven. There we will all be transcendently, radiously glorious, perfectly holy, without any sin whatsoever. So lovely. Well, you see what happened even with with John, as this angel is telling him, he's just a tour guide. He's just a servant doing his job. And, and on two occasions, John can't help himself. He has to bow down and worship the angel. And of course, he's rebuked for it immediately. You shouldn't worship anything that is not God. But yet, this angel is so radiously glorious in appearance and in words and in actions, he, gets, he can't help it. Well, that's all of us. That's what's so glorious about this city. 
That's what's so wonderful. That's what enabled Christ to say, or what Christ experienced. That he was able to endure the sufferings of the cross because of the joy set before him. And there's where we turn to that theme that I mentioned at the beginning. Yes, all of these things are on offer for us. And we tend, naturally tend to think of how wonderful it is for us as God's people. But believe it or not, there is something wonderful for Christ himself. This was the thing, in essence, if we could think of it this way, on offer for him. As he submitted to the Father's will and endured the immense, infinite suffering, enduring the wrath of God on the cross, he didn't do it for no reason. The joy set before him was this city who is his bride of all those redeemed by his shed blood. Now, I need not say that the, the cross was something unimaginably terrible. And if something could bring him such great joy that would enable him to endure it, well, ladies and gentlemen, I believe it is more than enough to enable us, if we think of it rightly, if we understand what awaits us in heaven, to endure the light afflictions that we are called to endure for the moment. Now, to further apply all this to, to us, you have to ask the question, how did she get there? And we have to be very clear about this because sometimes we might look at wonderful, um, I don't know, models and, and beauty queens and you say, well, it's wonderful for them. But there's no way of getting there. There's no way from here to there. Well, I want us to understand that that is not our situation. There is a way of getting there. The, the, the bride was brought into this condition because she received the offer of the gospel. Each and every part of that city, every person brought into the heavenly Jerusalem at some point believed the gospel, believed the good news that they could be saved through the work of another, through the Messiah, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's the case for them, it's the case, of course, for us. This gospel is everlasting. This gospel is no different today than it ever has been. And the gospel is that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And if you receive the words, even the words this morning, we said last time what is on offer. We mentioned the wonder of what is on offer in the gospel. And we, we said how beautiful this offer was and that is given to anyone who thirsts. It's not limited to a few, amount of, a few limited people. The terms are not something impossible for us to do. All we have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll be saved. I wish I sometimes wish I could make it more complicated because sometimes people don't believe that it's so simple and so easy. And they hear it more than once and they, 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 they lay it aside. And maybe I could give you some sort of new thing that you'd... You'd, you'd grab a hold of a little easier. Well, I, there's no other gospel than that. And that's the only one. Jesus Christ is the one who's ultimately on offer. And if you see him and you recognize his loveliness and you desire him, if you're thirsty, then you will be saved. Put your faith in him. And secondly, you need to be assured 
of your faith. Those who are believers, sometimes we forget that we are believers. Those who have put their faith in Christ, sometimes the devil, in many ways, brings us to a distance to our Savior, and, and we, in, in counterproductive ways, we scrutinize ourselves. Now, I don't mean that we shouldn't occasionally look and make sure that our faith is, is genuine. The Bible is very clear that there will be evidence in our life that we are Christians. But we must understand that the Lord wishes, the Lord gives us every reason that we might have assurance of our faith because we know that that is the centerpiece of our joy. If he commands us to rejoice, he gives us the way to rejoice. And the way to rejoice is to know that we are in Christ, to know that this heavenly city, to know that this thing that has been planned, this thing that has been built up over the centuries is ours. We are part of it. And us hearing about this heavenly Jerusalem, that becomes part of our assurance as well. Because Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that may be conformed to his glorious body. That's true. And for those who believe, we eagerly do await. And if that is your experience, if that is the way you receive even this inadequate picture of heaven this morning, this picture of the, 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 uh, the bride of Christ, bought for us through the shed blood of Christ, bought for Christ your heart leaps at these things, then that ought to be a plank, an element of your assurance. And thirdly and finally, I would just remind us to be encouraged to carry on. If indeed the thing that we are most, that Christ would most have us to do is to think about heavenly things, to turn away from constantly looking into this this world and to have our thoughts entirely constrained by the things that go on here and to have a, a very gimlet sort of eye looking at our own sin and the sin of others and to, to think in these terms only, to, to remind ourselves only that we're hypocrites. I hear that a lot and it's true, right? You know, well, I don't like to go to church because they're such hypocrites. Yeah, 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 it's right. And worse than that, that's what this church and every other church is full of. That's right. But if that is the entirety of your horizon, then you will live a miserable life. Your horizon, you are not told. You are told to love people despite their sin. But you are not told to fill your horizon. You are not told to feast your eyes on the not-so-pretty bride as she is now. You are told to feast your eyes, to fill your horizon with a bride as she is communicated, as she is revealed to you in Scripture here in Revelation and in other places. The bride as she will be, as she is in Christ, made perfect. And it is to these things that our hearts and our minds must be on. If every new little trial or big trial that comes along is a thing that fills our horizon, If our foibles and the foibles of others are the only thing that ever come to mind, then again, we are going to be miserable Christians. But rather, the great thing that is constantly filling your imagination 
is the coming glorious city of, of, of God, the new Jerusalem coming down as a bride prepared for her husband. And we're going to be joyful Christians. And that's what we're called to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desperately need your help to see things as they ought to be seen, to imagine things as they ought to be imagined. And Lord, because we are entirely inadequate for these things, Lord, because we cannot see as we ought to see, everything in this world is clouded. And we must confess that too often our horizons are exactly filled with everything on this earth and almost nothing in heaven. Lord, how we pray that you would reverse these things. How we pray, Lord, that those who are yet outside of Christ, those who have heard the gospel many times perhaps, those who think themselves above it all, how we pray, Lord, that they would consider the magnitude of what is offered to them that they would yearn to be part of this heavenly Jerusalem and that they would put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they would be in union with him and made to share in all these things. Of course, they're not worthy. None of us are. And Lord, we recognize all too well the reality of our sin and we repent from it. But Lord God, help us to feast our eyes on this Radiant bride, the joy set before us, in particular of Christ himself. We ask all this in his name. Amen.